The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art from the Art Newspaper. This week we explore how safe museums are from theft now that they're closed and cities are under lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. We talked to Martin Bailey about the recent theft of a Van Gogh in the Netherlands, the history of stolen Van Goghs and who steals art and why. We also talked to Vernon Rapley, the Director of Cultural Heritage Protection and Security at the Victorian Albert Museum in London, about how safe the museum is around a month since it closed, and as London's streets remain deserted. The art critic Laura Cumming picks the latest lonely work behind closed doors in a museum, Peter Bruegel the Elder's Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. And finally, we have a special contribution from the artist Pablo Helguera, who's also the art newspaper's cartoonist. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, on the 30th of March, thieves broke into the Singer Laren Museum in the town of Laren in the Netherlands and stole Vincent van Gogh's painting, The Parsonage Garden at Noonan in spring from 1884. Like all other museums in Holland, the Singer-Laren is closed due to the coronavirus, and the Netherlands, like most European countries, is on lockdown. Martin Bailey writes a weekly blog at theartnewspaper.com called Adventures with Van Gogh, and as the Art Newspaper's London correspondent, has reported on numerous examples of art theft over the years. So we thought he might be able to shed some light on whether the current conditions have helped the thieves. So, Martin, let's begin by talking about the theft at the Laren Museum. Tell us more about it. Uh, Well, it happened very early in the morning. It was 3.15 on uh, Monday morning, and uh, the thieves, and I assume there must have been two of them at least, um, broke through the front door of the museum in Laren and um, went immediately to an exhibition gallery where they had obviously decided to target the Van Gogh, and they ran out with one painting... Um, an early Van Gogh painting, and um, took it away. And um, uh, the other curious thing is that it happened on his birthday, Van Gogh's birthday, which is most bizarre. And to begin with, I thought, well, could it be a prank or something like that? Um, But it's turned out not to have been. And I actually wonder whether the thieves were intelligent enough to realise that they'd plotted this for the artist's birthday. So you think it may have been more coincidence by default rather than by design? That's my my guess. But I obviously don't have access to um, the investigations that the detectives in the Netherlands will have. Right. But, I mean, what's crucial is that this was very much a targeted um, theft of a Van Gogh, wasn't it? Because it wasn't as as if it was a Van Gogh exhibition. It was a a group exhibition. Exactly. They went for that one painting and... uh, I assume they went for that one painting because of the name. Um, You can't have much bigger name than Van Gogh. And um, that's why they just took the one painting. So uh, can you give us, you know, you're an esteemed Van Gogh expert. How would you estimate the importance of this painting? Well, it's from his Noonan period when he was um, uh, really beginning to paint seriously. And he was living with his parents in the village of Noonan um, in order to save money, of course. And he really developed his art there, and he was painting the, the local peasants, uh, he was painting landscapes, 
and that this was the view that from the garden of his parents' house. His father was um, the local parson, and so it was from the parsonage. And it's a lovely view into the garden, and in the background you just see the tower of the church, old church at Noonan, uh, which was um, had been abandoned and was about to be pulled down. And there's a figure of a woman dressed in black who's turning around to look at the painter. So it's an important work. I mean, I should stress that it doesn't have quite the same financial value as the major Van Goghs that we think of, you know, the sunflowers and the starry nights and the wonderful paintings that he did when he was in France. But it's still an important work. And it's also a great loss for the museum which had lent it because it didn't belong to the museum in Laren. It was on loan from the Groningen Museum in the north of the Netherlands. And it's their only Van Gogh, and it's a devastating loss for for that museum. You talked about the value there. What 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 sort of indications have you got of the value of the work? Well, I talked to a dealer in the Hague, who's um, probably the major Dutch dealer um, in Van Gogh paintings, particularly of the Dutch period, and he estimated that it could be worth around one and a half million euros. Now, in terms of what the really famous Van Goghs fetch. That's not quite peanuts, but it's not very much. So the thieves have ended up with a Van Gogh, but not one of the greatest period. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, that, isn't it? Because I don't, I don't know if, if you'd have shown me... I've never, I hadn't seen this painting, so I don't know if you'd have shown me this painting blind, whether I'd have been able to identify it as a Van Gogh at all, actually. Well, no, it's painted in rather the style of the Hague School artists, um, who Van Gogh was very influenced at that time. And they did landscapes in rather muted colours, and this painting is very much in that style. It's a rather dark painting. The, the, and although it's supposed to be a painting of spring, it gives more of a sort of winter feel to it. It's rather sort of dark. I was very amused to see in your blog that you actually gave some advice to the thieves in this in this instance about this work. Can you say what that was? Well, if the thieves are listening to the art newspaper podcast, um, my piece of advice would be uh, the, the painting, they've got to be careful of the painting because of its condition. It's actually painted slightly unusually oil on paper, not oil on canvas. And the paper has been mounted on board. So it's quite stiff. And in that sense, it's quite solid and more robust than an oil painting on canvas. But, and this is an important point, the wood that it's been mounted on would be very vulnerable to humidity. So I would advise the thieves to be very careful to try and keep the painting in conditions of relatively stable humidity. <laughs> so we'll we'll come on to what kind of people might be interested in this work in a moment. But let's first talk about whether um, you think that the coronavirus situation and lockdown made it easier for the thieves to to make this theft. Well, that's an interesting question. And of course, it came as quite a shock to read that someone should actually steal a publicly owned painting in this terrible period of crisis. And in the Netherlands, a thousand people had died uh, by last week. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether the coronavirus situation made it easier for the thieves. And in some way, that might have been the case. Um, there might be fewer staff working because some might be ill. Those staff who were working on the site um, would have to keep a distance from, from each other. Um, on the other hand, in some ways, it might have been more difficult. I mean, after all, the museum had been closed. It was closed 
um, two weeks earlier because of the virus and I say closed to the public. So it was more fully sort of closed up properly. And Laren is actually quite a small, sleepy town, and there would not be many people driving around at three o'clock in the morning. So any vehicles moving around or any sort of sharp noise uh, would have really sounded loud um, at that time, and even more so during a period of lockdown. So there was a greater chance that um, the getaway vehicle might have been spotted. So I think on balance, it was sort of six of one and half a dozen of the others, whether, whether it made it easier or more difficult uh, to steal the painting at this particular moment in time. Now, there's a long history, isn't there, that you've identified of, of Van Gogh's being stolen? I mean, a, a huge number of Van Gogh's have been stolen over the years. It, in, incredibly, yes. I mean, I look back at the figures and I was just looking at thefts in the Netherlands. But in fact, there have been six previous thefts of Van Gogh paintings um, in the last few decades and altogether 28 Van Gogh paintings have been stolen. I mean one of them was a terrible event at the Van Gogh Museum when 20 paintings were stolen but recovered within a very short period of time. Now what's interesting and what I think gives hope in the present situation is that all those 28 paintings were eventually recovered. Some of them were recovered within minutes and some of them um, took decades, but they've all come back. And um, that does give um, hope that um, there may be some some real, real possibility that we will get the Laren painting back again. So let's just talk more widely then about why somebody would steal a work of art that is well known and couldn't be sold on the open market. Are there sort of networks, underworld networks, essentially, that trade in these artworks, i.e. that, you know, they're never intended to be to be resold, they they just become collateral. Is that is that the reality? Well, I think the first thing to say is that in some ways, it's easier to steal a painting than it is to actually realise the proceeds. Um, criminals aren't always the brightest lads on the block. And um, there's a thought, ah, there's a Van Gogh painting, it's worth millions, I'll go and take it. But what do you do with it when you've got it? That's the question. Now, um, the press often speculates about um, an artwork being stolen to order. There's a certain Mr. Big who's hiding the painting in his lair somewhere um, and enjoying it in private. But there have been very, very few cases where this has been shown to be the case. And it's generally accepted that these sort of stolen artworks, they obviously can't be sold on the open market. So the only possibility for the thieves is to sort of use them as a sort of so-called currency in the underworld uh, for a fraction of their true value. And um, they may be sort of traded and uh, they may be valued at well under 10% of the open market value, a tiny proportion. And then they're exchanged, um, sometimes uh, for money, sometimes for commodities, illegal commodities like drugs. And they then sort of circulate among several uh, gangsters, if you like. And it's really a sort of form of underworld currency. But at some point, they're normally, but not always, recovered. Right. And how do we know about this sort of thing? Are they, are they sort of very 
um, public cases where we've got this information? I mean, um, you know, are Interpol sort of able to provide this kind of detail to you as a journalist when you've investigated stuff? Um, this sort of detail is almost always kept confidential, um, if possible, by the um, authorities. So it, it, it really only comes out if there's a court case or a few details may be released when a picture is 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 recovered and we've sort of seen this pattern where it appears that paintings have been used as currency um in the criminal world right now one of the most famous examples of these is a very um well documented example and that's the stolen turners the tate turners that were stolen in 1994 from the schoenkunstteller in frankfurt and were eventually recovered and because of a book by sandy nan who was the director of public programs at the tate at the time we have a lot of information about that very very major theft and a sort of extraordinary case Yes, and the the paintings were recovered many, many years later, one of them in the year 2000, the other in 2002, a couple of years later. They were very valuable paintings. They were insured for £12 million each in 1994. Obviously, their financial value is much, much greater now. And they had indeed uh, circulated in the underworld, and um, police and detectives used rather clever means to entice the criminals who were holding them uh, to reveal where they were and they were eventually uh, recovered and um, are back on view at the Tate. That's right and, but, it, but it involved I mean you know there's a lot of speculation but did we ever get any facts about who was holding them? Yes this is one of the cases where quite a lot of information did eventually emerge and there was great interest in the case and it appeared that the paintings had gone to the Balkans and various Serbian gangsters had been involved in holding the pictures at various times and they changed hands so this was a very good example of where paintings are used as currency in the underworld. Indeed. I mean, one of the things that's most interesting about this is, of course, museums want to get these works back. Um, and and uh, obviously, they have a responsibility to do so legally. But there are all sorts of very difficult ethical issues that, that, that museums are confronted with in just trying to get these paintings back, aren't they? In, indeed. And the, the um, people in the Netherlands, uh, Lara and the Groningen Museum, who lent the painting that was stolen, uh, will be looking at this very carefully now. And my guess is that the uh, paintings uh, are insured and that the insurers uh, will help um, set up some sort of um, reward scheme for information leading to um, the recovery or the, of the painting and uh, possibly the arrest of the criminals. Now, this uh, reward money cannot and should not be paid to any of one who has been involved in the thefts. So the idea is that those people who've heard about the thefts or who have information but are not involved um, can apply for a reward. But it becomes a very grey area, this, and this also emerged in the Tate case. And, of course, on the one hand, we want our artworks back, we want the public artworks back, but we don't want to encourage future thefts. And that's the dilemma. And it's very important that it's, that there's no perception that criminals are benefiting from rewards. So that's the difficult question which will face those people who are investigating the recent theft in the Netherlands. 
that was what struck me when I read Sandy Nan's book, and it was the, the, uh, you know he's a, a, a long serving public public official, somebody who worked in museums all his life, um, most recently as director of the National Portrait Gallery. But you could see he was agonising about all these decisions that he was having to make alongside the trustees of the Tate and the director of the Tate Nixarota. It was it was clearly a really fraught situation. This idea that yes, there was this tantalising chance to retrieve the Turners, but every decision he was making had to be thought through very, very carefully, didn't it? That's right. And of course, it was only a small group of people. Um, you know, he couldn't consult his other colleagues at the Tate. So it was a very small number of people who were having to make the decisions. And um, as the director of, uh, of, a, of a public gallery, he was very much aware of the dilemma that he was facing. On the one hand, he wanted the publicly owned painting back again. On the other hand, he didn't want to encourage other thieves to, um, to raid um, other public collections in the future. So it was a very fine balance. And um, you're quite right, I talked to him a lot about it. And it was an agonising period for him when he was involved in this. Let's hope that the Groningen Museum gets its painting back and, like all the other Van Goghs that you talked about, it is retrieved. Martin, thanks for telling us all about this. Thank you. You can read Martin Bailey's blog, Adventures with Van Gogh, at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Now, like all galleries in London, the Victoria and Albert Museum is closed until further notice due to COVID-19. But are extra measures in place to counter the danger of theft and other security risks during the lockdown? I spoke to Vernon Rapley, the Director of Cultural Heritage Protection and Security at the V&A, to find out. Vernon, to begin with, how has coronavirus impacted security at museums? Well, of course, coronavirus has created a very different uh, risk profile for the museum. Normally, we're a museum with more than three and a half million visitors a year coming through our doors. Uh, they're all eyes and ears for us. They're all keeping an eye for things that are for the happening and going wrong. Uh, we also have over nearly a thousand members of staff and contractors on site as well, again, all of whom are hopefully keeping a, an eye out for things. Um, but at the same time, uh, that we've lost that that sort of vision, those eyes and ears. We've we've also lost our visitors, and therefore we've lost one of our one of our threats. Because although it's incredibly rare for a visitor to come into the museum to steal or even deliberately damage an object, um, it, it of course does sadly happen occasionally, and that means that it's removed that particular type of risk profile um, and exposed us to a different one, and a one that we're really exposed to every night during lockdown. Every every night when our parties have finished and our visitors have gone, uh, we, we enter a period of lockdown, which is security heaven. Uh, it's, it's when we can lock all of our doors and, and only have our own security team on site, and we can set all of our alarms uh, and make ourselves as secure as we can on a perimeter, rather than worrying about people being within the building. And so we've we've now entered a period where really that's become the norm. It's almost like a permanent night time. Uh, it's it's um, it's strange because the light is still in the galleries and and the objects are still there, but they've lost they've lost something. There's something not right about those objects because the people aren't aren't with them. But from a security perspective, we're at a very sort of secure time. 
we're at a time where we really just need to look at our perimeter, set our alarms. We have thousands of alarms, thousands of cameras, uh, and just make sure that all of the things that we've invested in over the years are all functioning uh, really well to protect us so that we're there and they're safe, ready for us to open again in the future. Right. So, so essentially what you're saying is, while obviously it's, it's extremely abnormal times, the, the, the mode that you're in is no different to an, a normal night at the V&A when, as you say, all the, the, the part, you know, the catering's gone, the parties are over and, 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 it's, and, and the museum's empty of visitors waiting for the next morning. Yes, it's very much a sleeping beauty. Uh, you know, we've put it into a permanent deep slumber. Uh, the museum is in that state and, and security is looking after it in the way that we do every night. It is different. Of course, it's different. And we still have to have the occasional person come in. Uh, we need maintenance. There's odd things around the museum that need doing, but, but it's much easier to manage those people. So, of course, we can't wait to open the museum to, uh, to our visitors again. But actually, from a security perspective at the moment, we feel really secure. Right. Are you at the V&A now? Yeah, I'm speaking to you from from my office. Um, so tell me what it's like in the galleries, because as you say, I mean, I, I've been in a gallery at night with a film crew, for instance, and 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 in a way, it's it's an extraordinary privilege to be in those galleries when nobody else is. But after when it's night, day after day, and night after night, it must be really eerie there. Um, I think. I don't find it eerie. Um, I, I think it has a it has a strange beauty. It's also a huge privilege to be able to to see all of these objects without anyone getting in your way or, or interrupting you. But but at the same time, as I said earlier, the objects have really lost. There's something about them that's different. They're, they're not. I think people, lighting, movement, and sound brings them to life. Uh, and when you walk around, they're just they're just objects now. They're just sitting there uh, dormantly waiting. I think for us to open our doors and their audience to come back again. So it is something very different about it. So it's a privilege, but it's also quite sad as well to to see the museum in this state. Um, Can you tell me something about emergency planning? Because obviously, I imagine you would plan for emergencies, but would would a pandemic, an epidemic, be among the the sort of planning operations that you have in in store, as it were? Uh, well, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, we have um, we've planned for all sorts of eventualities for for many years, and pandemic is is one of them. We we tend to plan rather though for for the cause of concern as a pandemic, but actually the impact that it has upon us. So we plan for us being closed, or us not having enough staff, or us losing income, and that and that way our plans are adaptable to any given situation because nobody could have guessed just a few years ago what what would be happening now. In fact. In November 2018, we hosted a conference here called Planning for the Unthinkable. And now we're thinking of hosting one saying, well, now the unthinkable has happened. And um, But but actually, our plans were, were good. They've served us well because we had plans not to be able to come to the building, not to have any staff. Uh, and so the, the, the cause of that uh, is different, but the, the planning has remained robust and solid. And, um, we, you know, we, it's something that this museum has invested in really well, as I'm sure many others have. We have a 25-strong um, crisis management committee that, that meets every month and has planned for years uh, for, for this, taking representatives from every part of the museum, bringing them together so we can each understand our own needs and concerns. Um, and, and this is all, you know, something that, that I'm sure most major museums do, but I think something we've taken great pride in at the Victorian Albert Museum for, for certainly the last uh, 10 years that I've been here. It's been something that's really been at the top of everybody's agenda and something that's brought the whole museum together uh, to work towards. 
Now you say, you know, um, visitor vigilance is like a key factor in your security outlook, if you like, you know, the fact that you have thousands of people in there every day helps you if something goes wrong. So do, do you have to be extra wary? I mean, you've got very old buildings at the V&A. So I, I imagine that theft isn't the only thing that you're worried about at the moment. You could have leaking pipes or, um, uh, you know, a plug uh, catching fire or whatever. I, I imagine that you, you are alert to all sorts of security risks, right? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, as you say, art theft is thankfully incredibly rare. Um, and, and sadly, uh, bits of, bits of ceiling falling down or, or small, you know, small electrical faults or leaks, uh, in an old building are, are far more common. And that's something that we're very used to dealing with. Our patrols that, that operate 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Of course, they're, they're there to be alert to, to criminals trying to enter our building, but that's largely dealt with by our perimeter alarms and our other technical security devices. Actually, they're there to look for drips and leaks. Um, and, and again, now things have changed because now our curators and our technical teams can't come on site. So now our security team is starting to look for other indications to make sure that the objects are safe for the longer term. We're looking at humidity levels for those objects. These are things that normally are dealt with by our curatorial team. We're changing filters in some of the, in some of the cases if necessary. So that because people can't come in and do them. So we've taken on a, a real sense of ownership for, for the safety in all regards of the, of the collection. Obviously, we're all, everyone in the UK is under very strict instructions, stay at home, etc. I was wondering, do you have to give your security staff additional instructions? Are they, in a way, on a tighter lockdown, knowing that they're vital to the security of the museum going forward? Yeah, well, we bring in the absolute minimum number of people. Uh, that allows the vast majority of V&A staff to stay at home. To, to, to keep themselves and their families safe and protect the NHS and save lives. And we only bring in those that are absolutely necessary. And then with those that come in, we patrol more than two metres apart. Uh, we allow them, obviously, to wear face masks and protective clothing. We have that, although we've given a lot of our protective gloves and equipment uh, to, to the emergency services. We, we have enough for our very small complement of security staff to, to keep them safe. Um, our control room is a sterile area. We don't allow people in there. Um, even other members of the security team are not encouraged to go in there because that's a, they're highly trained staff in that area. We can't afford to, to, to lose them. Um, we have adapted the, the pattern of shifts to try and minimise the risk to people uh, and adopted a really a high level of sort of cleaning and, and, and health regime here. Um, so we're, we're really proud of the team we've got here. Uh, they're doing a great job in keeping everybody else uh, at home uh, and able to work at home. But simple fact is we do need people on site patrolling these galleries, able to respond very quickly if something does happen. Now, to sort of go to a sort of uh, a lighter note, I mean, a lot of people's intrigue about art theft and the sort of fictional stories have all given us, given us a sort of an idea of what, art crime looks like but what in the V&A's history has there been in terms of art heist is there an, is anything spectacular ever happened there well I think I think every museum uh, has had its moments in history uh, I've been here now as the head of security or director of security for 10 years and prior to that I was the head of Scotland Yard's art and antiques unit and so I saw this museum and others from a different perspective I saw it from the eyes of a, a police investigating officer looking at art crime and of course there was art crime uh, back at the V&A, we had a number of thefts uh, in the in the mid 
and and sadly some of those objects were not were not recovered and are still missing today and this has really highlighted since then the need to place security at the very top of our agenda it's it's one of our core functions uh, is is to protect our objects for future generations as well as of course to make make them accessible and so this museum invested hugely in security um, from that point and it's now a very different world and i'm pleased to say that there's been uh, and I'm really touching wood here. No major art theft since I've been here in 2010. Right. So I guess last question is, you know, we, we have no idea when this situation is going to end. But have you learnt things over this period that you will now uh, sort of w- will help your planning in the future? Or is it sort of pretty much gone exactly as you'd as you'd hoped? I think things have gone well um i think i think our plans have served as well but of course we've learned things i think we've learned that this sort of thing can happen uh, i think it's really although planning for these sort of eventualities or crisis was was a priority within the museum it's really brought it to home of those departments who maybe hadn't taken it quite as seriously before um i think they really understand now why we'd been asking for so long for for them to to make these plans and to set up groups and things that they that they needed to i think it's also really brought us together as a community we've been working really well with um with with dcms the arts council england um but also in a whole series of networks and groups that we've built up over the years you know we're not in competition with each other museums we freely share information and help each other and so the museum groups in both london and the uk and wider afield in europe and the world groups uh, have all been sharing information and knowledge and so we're all learning from the experiences of others um, and for example on the icms uh, the international council of museum security you know one of our one of our board members i'm a board member another board member is from china and so we learned very early on uh, how they were dealing with the situation and we're now learning from from countries that are coming out of this how they're dealing with it because again this remobilization is new to us this museum has not closed in the way it's closed now ever and so coming out of that uh, and being ready for our public again is something that we're now starting to learn from our international colleagues and friends Well, I hope that moment comes sooner rather than later. And in the meantime, I hope you have a very peaceful few weeks until then. Thank you very much. You can read Christina Ruiz and Catherine Hickley's article on museum security at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Still to come, the art critic for The Observer in London, Laura Cumming, explores Peter Bruegel the Elder's landscape with the fall of Icarus. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. Seven US arts organisations have come together to launch the first National Relief Fund for artists affected by the coronavirus pandemic. The fund, titled Artist Relief, is offering unrestricted $5,000 grants on a rolling basis for the next six months to help thousands of artists across the US weather the economic fallout of COVID-19. The coalition launched on Thursday the 9th of April and had already raised $10 million. Some galleries in Austria are planning to reopen next week, with cautious measures such as masks for customers and reduced opening hours after the government in Vienna announced it's easing coronavirus restrictions. 
By the 9th of April, Austria had recorded 13,105 cases of coronavirus and 295 deaths. Austria had quickly introduced strict lockdown measures early on, and the period of time over which the number of new cases doubles has increased to more than 10 days. These are the reasons Chancellor Sebastian Kurz has given for easing the restrictions amid some criticism. But Hans Noll, a Vienna dealer, who's also president of the Association of Austrian Modern Art Galleries, says there are mixed feelings among his peers. Some want to open, others say it's too early, Noll says. And finally, the Humboldt Forum in Berlin caught fire on the 8th of April. The blaze in the new museum complex located in a reconstruction of the former Prussian royal palace was caused by the explosion of a propane gas cylinder. A statement from the Humboldt Forum said firefighters extinguished the blaze within 20 minutes. Hans-Dieter Hegner, the head of construction at the site, said the fire had not caused any damage to the building because it was outside the palace. Construction can continue according to schedule, he said. You can read all these stories and, of course, the latest on the effects of the coronavirus on the art world at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. With over 250 years of auctions, Christie's leads the art world with live and online sales in more than 80 categories. Christie's private sales allow for buying or selling fine art, decorative objects, jewellery and watches, all on your schedule. Art anytime. Explore more on christies.com. Now for the latest in our series Lonely Works, in which we focus on artworks in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus. This week, Laura Cumming, the art critic at the Observer newspaper in London and author of several books, has chosen Peter Bruegel the Elder's Landscape with the Fall of Icarus in the Old Masters Museum, one of the Royal Museums of Fine Arts in Brussels, Belgium. The work has drawn several literary responses, most famously in W.H. Auden's poem Musée des Beaux-Arts and in a poem by the US writer William Carlos Williams. Now it features in Laura's latest hugely acclaimed book on Chapel Sands. I spoke to Laura from her home in London and you can see the painting as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. So, Laura, tell me, first of all, where you encountered Bruegel's Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. Bruegel's Landscape with the Fall of Icarus is, um, I suppose, the very first painting I ever saw in my life. Uh, It was hanging in a reproduction in the house I was brought up in, in Edinburgh. And it was a wonderful reproduction of the sort that used to be published in, you know, very old books and art books in the 1920s, where you could kind of fill it them out they were only glued along one side and you could take a scalpel and kind of winkle them out of the book and hang them on the wall and I think probably my parents generation of artists all the pictures on our walls were more or less taken stolen as it were from books and this picture hung at that point um, in the kitchen in our house in Edinburgh it now hangs in the kitchen in my house in London and I have had it with me really all my life and I have looked at it in every kind of circumstance so I've sat in you know wintry Edinburgh eating soup looking at it and I've sat in summery London with my daughters looking at it and so on so it's a it's a painting I know so well that um, it's for me an immense test of Bruegel's genius that the painting is to me still inexhaustible I could still look at it over every meal and still wonder at it. That's fantastic. Now tell me about the personal significance, because of course it it figures very importantly in the story of your mother, which has become um, so familiar to many readers in the form of On Chapel Sands. 
The the painting is very important for her because in the memoir you kindly refer to, I'm describing a life of uh, real imprisonment in a tiny house on a fraction of English coastline. Um, my mother was more or less trapped inside that house for a very long time from the age of um, from childhood right until she was 16 when some wonderful art teacher starts to notice that she's very good at drawing and um, manages to persuade her father to get her into night school and she goes to Skegness, <laughs> not known as the kind of, you know, centre of art, but um, crucial in my mother's life to study with this teacher and eventually she gets away to Nottingham College of Art. Hooray, the greatest institution on earth as far as I'm concerned because it's there that she really flies away from this terrible, um, dark and very... um, a deprived background um, of full of secrets and, and, and nightmares and lies and so on. And with her first money that she earns um, doing a job as a, a, a postmistress, um, she buys the book in which this painting um, is a major plate, the first plate in the book. And so it means everything to her. And I think her own art comes very much out of looking at Bruegel. Um, so it means a great deal to me because of that but it also means a great deal to me because of um, its ability as a painting to show us all paintings show us timelessness they stop time or they show us the past in the present and so on but this picture I think does something really unique so you're looking at these extraordinarily antiquated looking figures with their queer medieval costumes and their um, strange headgear and their, you know, doublet and hose. And I'm thinking particularly of the pleats of the ploughman's tunic, um, which as sharp as like a sort of gym slip in modern times and his helmet that he's wearing uh, which I always think makes him look as if he's wearing a motorbike helmet and so there are (laughs) these strange sort of details of the painting which ought to be forced back into the time that it was painted which was the middle of the 16th century hundreds and hundreds of years ago but which seemed to me to speak to today and um what I really think is is wonderful is that the painting shows us a world we know. Um, this marvellous spring green that's infusing the landscape, the, the whole, this hard, parched brown soil, um, but the sheep are beginning to find something to eat and there's a, a new bird, a partridge, settling on a bough and this immense expanse of light that's coming right across this painting from far, far away, this wonderful setting sun on the blue horizon and this expanse of light um, that shows you this great kind of cosmological principle about our, our life, which is that we're living on a circular, turning globe and so on all of this seems to me to to show us our modern time this high round world lit by this magnificent sun that's going to melt the wings of icarus it's the very same world that we live in where these plowmen and these fishermen and so on lived and worked and so on but we live in it now and so i've always felt that the painting showed me the landscape it's a very northern landscape it's a sort of world in which we we live in in this country in the united kingdom and it shows me in a way this the seascapes that my mother lived in then and which i can visit now and they're no different we change but the landscape doesn't and of course i mean famously it's called landscape with the fall of icarus but you could look at this picture and not know that icarus was in it couldn't you yes um it's it's i think to me it is the greatest 
visual joke ever created. It slows the eye down so brilliantly that the first thing you see is the great rump of the back side of the horse and um you know the plowman doing his toiling and so on and then you start your eye starts to pick its way i think very naturally across the sea to the sun to see how it's all lit and the eye passes right across the landscape as the painting wants you invites you to do to to the beautiful sun at the back and the sea in between and gradually you're moving around it and then you see this this gormless peasant looking up at the sky and because you are effectively at this point gormless too you you look up at the sky and see nothing there but you wonder what he's looking up at so maybe he's looking at something that's dropped and so on and then you see the ship and by this time um, it is effectively going to be when it comes the end of a very long build-up the punchline finally the very last thing like a, a like the exclamation mark is the two legs disappearing into the water which are so small you would overlook them and I did when I was a child and my daughters always did when they were children and you know they used to look at it and I'd say well what's it all about really and you know and your <laughs> eye travels round and round the landscape until you finally see these legs disappearing and a tiny as I now know from having seen the painting in reality in the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Belgium the tiny hand um you know struggling for life is actually not quite dead it is the fall rather than the death yeah and one of the things that is that I love about this painting is that it tells us also so much about Bruegel's um, compositional ideas and also it informs us much more about him as a colorist. That red uh, worn by the ploughman is so wonderfully vivid, isn't it? But also it's that it's it, you can look at this and also refer back to things like Hunters of the in the Snow because there is that same diagonal, that same sort of extraordinary world view of that, that Bruegel takes in the picture. Yes, I mean, who is like him? Um, I completely agree with that point, Ben. He he is. I mean, that we think of when we think of Bruegel, we always think of crowded scenes in huge landscapes, and they're always always meant to show us something. You know, um, a proverbial scene. And this is a proverbial scene. But this one includes the whole blooming world. I mean, if you look at it very closely, you can see the kind of sort of strange city on a hill in the distance that you you might expect to see in a Leonardo, actually. Um, and, you know, and then if you come very far to the to the foreground, you'll see um, the curious, strange little figure on the left hand side. Nobody's quite knows who he is stuck inside a sort of thicket of uh, what is he he's like something out of bosch and um and and then you you, you, you as your eye passes across it you think you're seeing well i think i'm seeing a, a, the whole of flemish art in a way and northern art and and so on but then there's this incredible radiant sun which seems to be i always think turner must have looked at this at some point i know that he cannot really have seen it but um i i feel that there's turner in the sun that diaphanous cosmological light that's coming across the sea i mean it really speaks of the greatest landscape painting ever and yet at the end of it all a kind of a joke or is it a joke um obviously uh the great poem that's associated with it is the is auden's magnificent poem Musée de Beaux-Arts which everybody listening to this will of course know um, about suffering, they were never wrong the old masters, how well they understood its human position how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along 
and so it goes on and in, he comes to the painting eventually in Bruegel's Icarus for instance how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster the ploughman may have heard the splash the forsaken cry but for him it was not an important failure the sun shone and so he goes on and his poem is very much about agony and torture and disaster and death and 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 so on um and that of course is there in this it's the point of the painting which takes its sub- subject matter from Ovid um but I always think it could be more like Aesop than Ovid in this painting because it's so much more lightsome there's another poem about it which I actually greatly prefer to the Auden though of course Auden's poem is a masterpiece but for me there's there's a sort of infinite beauty in Bruegel's scene and and something undeniably comedic about it I mean there's you know the plowman's pudding bull haircut and the the stupid shepherd and and the silly tumbling legs because it's the, the legs are not shown as something deeply tragic they're shown as a sort of um um, a circus act almost it's a kind of comic fall um, and I love very much uh, the American poet and doctor of viruses um, William Carlos Williams um, he wrote a, a marvellous poem about it which I think comes much closer to my sense of of this great painting which loves seasons and sunshine and so on the way that Bruegel always did according to Bruegel when Icarus fell it was spring A farmer was ploughing his field. The whole pageantry of the year was awake, tingling near the edge of the sea, concerned with itself, sweating in the sun that melted the wings' wax unsignificantly off the coast. There was a splash, quite unnoticed. This was Icarus drowning. And although William Carlos Williams also refers to the tragedy... His poem, I think, is sort of rather similar to the painting insofar as it's, it circles around that wonderful phrase, the whole pageantry of the year mm. turning into spring, which is what the painting is so much about to me. So tell me again how these interpretations of the paintings relate to your own experience of it, because as you say, you've lived with it since you were a child. Well, um, it relates very particularly to my mother's life for me because when we looked at the painting when we were young together she she would look at it entirely in terms of what was beautiful and bright and joyous about it and and I would always think and we must acknowledge this is this is the tilt between William Carlos Williams and Auden um and and I would look at it and of course know that this was a terrible tale um I mean it's a it's a proverbial tale as we as we mentioned um but the tragedy is going on the point of the story is the foolishness of this this person who is falling now to their death as a result of flying so high in the sky too high too close to the sun and um for me the the painting has a very particular meaning because this is precisely what my grandfather did in my mother's life he he told tremendous lies um which changed her life and the lives of all of our family including me to this day um and he thought he could get away with it and the story of course of this of this stupid <laughs> icarus is that he thinks he's going to get away with it so i've always felt for me that the the meaning of the story was related to my own family um and i think that anyone looking at it 
is going to have a different interpretation of it. And to go back to my sense that it's an inexhaustible painting, um, folly, arrogance, uh, grandeur, disaster, um, and ploughing, and fishing, and working, and sunshine, and seasons, all go together in this painting so that you might see it in any one of these ways. You might be the unconcerned shepherd who's going to stop looking gormlessly up at the sky and look, carry on with his sheep afterwards and not ever have noticed the tragedy and be, as it were, um, you know, protected from it by his own interest in the sheep and the seasons. So I think it, it has many other morals to it, this, this painting. And yet nobody would ever say it was a moralistic painting. Um, it puts absolutely abundantly to the fore the pleasures of seeing and the joy of looking. One reason why this painting matters so much to me is because um, it, there are landscapes by great artists and even, for example, looking at the Titians in the National Gallery lately, um, you know, what a spectacular painter of weeds and fronds and bits of ill-considered growth at the bottom of the painting and so on. And I was staggered by those. But they push the painting and the scene and the images in the, the natural growth in them into the past for me. And there's something about this entire world view of Bruegel's, which I think must be compelling for everybody. And you mentioned the hunters in the snow and, you know, they could hardly be wearing more um, outlandishly antique outfits or or, you know, children's pastimes. I mean, you know, obviously it's true that some people still play with balls and skipping ropes, but there are lots of things in the children's pastimes, for example, you know, games that nobody would ever play now that are, you know, long forgotten. And um, and yet every single landscape that he paints seems to me to come forward into the modern moment. And I felt very keenly that this painting taught me, as no other painting has, that the world turns and it does not change um while we come and go and in all our stupidity and you know all our accidents and all of our kind of short lifespans and so on but it doesn't change and it's not that i think uh, it's not some sort of gaia myth point that i'm trying to make here it's that it's the only way for me that i have ever been able to think about my family's strange and mysterious past which consists visually only in black and white photographs and therefore seems to me to be a sort of another world that I can hardly enter um, but when I look at this painting I'm able to reconstruct the, the the lives of my forebears and anybody else's within a landscape that is real and living and so I've always felt this painting teaches me and teaches anyone who's looking at it not to think that the people of the past are dead and gone and everything's different then than it is now. One of the sort of art historical kind of projects around this, but I mean, this painting has been an endless source of intrigue for art historians over the years. And one of the things is that we know it is a Bruegel composition. We know it, it is Everything in it is basically Bruegel, but it is thought now, because it is on canvas, oil on canvas as opposed to uh, temper on canvas, that it is not by Bruegel. What do you make of all that side of it? <laughs> well, Ben, honestly, I just don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. Um, it is an interesting question. Of course, it's a vital question for scholars and conservationists and people who care a lot about attribution and provenance and so on. Um, I don't really in this case because 
it shows me if it isn't if it is indeed a copy if it is a copy as people claim um then it's showing me directly the mind of this greatest artist and if every single brushwork isn't necessarily by him and we have no real evidence that um, there aren't many hands involved as opposed to one. I mean, really nobody knows. Um, it's showing me his mind and the beauty of it and the brilliance of his art directly. And so it doesn't matter to me at all. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so delightful to hear you talking about this work. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk about. You can read Laura Cummings' reviews in The Observer or on theguardian.com and the paperback of On Chapel Sands is out now through Vintage for £9.99. In the US, it's called Five Days Gone and it's available in hardback through Scribner for $26. Laura's previous book, The Vanishing Man in Pursuit of Velasquez, is also available through Vintage at £10.99 and in the US as The Vanishing Velasquez for $17.99. Finally this week, a special contribution from the artist Pablo Helguera, who each month contributes a cartoon to the art newspaper. Here he reads a selection from his book The Parable Conference from 2014, a series of fictions pondering the art world. This is Dr Hikari's collection. If there is something that defines the lives of most people around us, it is the feeling of being permanently overscheduled. This is certainly true for me, where I feel that every hour of my life has been too accounted for. Which makes me wonder, in such a state of mind, how can one give enough time to art? I think about that question when I observe certain visitors at the museum, most of them more focused on looking at the art as if it was a job or a checklist to cover, often taking pictures of every artwork and contemplating their own phone screens for most of their visits. I understand them. I am also not the contemplative kind. It makes me think about the fact that we continue exhibiting artworks in a lineup format in this chronological, Cartesian fashion. It translates to the sensation that we are in a production line of experience that we are factory workers of perception. Once I heard a story from a museum researcher whose name I have forgotten. I will call her Francesca Walton. Francesca for many years studied museum visitors in galleries. As you may suspect, visitor behavior in museums is fairly predictable. We generally know how long they would linger, what they will spend more time looking at, what they may miss altogether. But there was one visitor in particular that this researcher encountered where the results were particularly unique. Let's call him Takeshi Hikari. Mr. Hikari was a successful retired doctor with a great passion for art. He was not a collector per se. That is, he did not collect actual artworks. He collected pictures that he himself took of them. His goal in life was to see every art museum in the world and to take pictures, with or without permission, of whatever the museum had on display. He was remarkably skilled at this task, so much so that even the most suspicious and alert museum guard would be fooled by his tactics. He went to the lengths of having secret cameras installed on a lapel pin and on a cane he walked around with. His impeccably discreet demeanor and the fact that he was quite a distinguished-looking gentleman made him practically undetectable. 
It would take him a few minutes to go through an entire small museum. When he could, he would also videotape the galleries. Walton ran into him at a gallery where photographing was actually allowed. In those cases, Dr. Hikari would take a regular camera and photograph every single artwork, spending two or three seconds on each, moving swiftly from one to the next. She followed him until he had photographed every single artwork. When she approached him, Dr. Hikari was surprised and one would say scared. When he learned that he was not a museum, when he learned that she was not a museum employee, he then relaxed. He proved reluctant at first to speak, but Francesca was an expert interviewer and very personable, someone that makes people easily at ease. He agreed to be interviewed for her study. At some point, Dr. Hikari invited Francesca to his apartment in the Upper West Side. As she recounted the experience of entering that site, she would struggle to find the words to describe what she saw. Dr. Hikari's apartment was packed with discs, videotapes, and various other forms of documentation of artworks in museums, as well as every kind of museum souvenir imaginable. Snow globes, posters, catalogs. It was impossible to even walk through the apartment without kicking or bumping into a pile of objects. By his own calculation, he had visited 7,300 museums in his lifetime and photographed all artworks on view in every single one of them. To him, the Holy Grail was the collection that was never on view. This caused him a great deal of grief, like the mountaineer who dreamt all his life of climbing that inaccessible peak. And what did he do with all that material? Francesca asked him. Did he look at it? Dr. Hikari would never give a straight answer. But it was apparent that, like a regular pack rat, the thrill was in owning the thing, not in looking at it or experiencing it later. Francesca and Dr. Hikari stayed in touch. From my perspective, I don't discard the notion that given that Dr. Hikari was a lonely older man and Francesca at an attractive young woman, he would have fantasized about having scored a romantic relationship, a fantasy that I highly doubt she ever shared. The fact of the matter is that when he passed away, he left in his will his entire collection of images to Francesca. It was an overwhelming behest. He took five large crates to empty the entire apartment. Francesca tried to find a place to donate this incredible wealth of material to, some kind of library or foundation. But once it was examined, it was clear that it would be useless for any purpose. The surreptitiously taken photographs were of poor quality. None of them were labeled, which made it practically impossible to identify them. Many of them were in formats that were difficult to transfer, and others were already corrupted or unreadable. In the end, Francesca had no choice but to dispose of it all, through a Staten Island waste management company that took it to a landfill. And, in a matter of a few hours, Francesca saw that entire collection be taken away, a lifetime of chasing artworks all over the world, millions of images documenting one viewer's journey through all imaginable museums, all pointless, all of them never opened or seen by a human eye. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And you can give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our daily newsletters, which you can sign up for at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the link at the top right of the homepage. 
The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor. Thanks to Martin, Vernon, Laura and Pablo and thank you for listening. Next week we have a Donald Judd special. See you then. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.